Lord God, thank you so much for the gospel that we've been talking about. Thank you that it is so simple and yet so deep and profound. We sang earlier about the Lord being our salvation. It's so good to know the security of the fact that Jesus has died for us. He's saved us. He's given us new life. And Lord, as we look into your word now, we pray that you would speak to us. That Lord, you would encourage us. If need be, please challenge us. And Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would work through my lips into all our hearts. In Jesus' name. For those of you who were here last time I spoke on 1 Peter, and we are in 1 Peter, you might remember that I stopped halfway through a sentence, which I don't normally do. Um, I, I stopped after um, verse 18 because there's an awful lot in the rest of the chapter, those few verses, and uh, time had gone, I didn't want to try and cram some good stuff into Pot. So um, we're going to pick up the rest of that passage today and move into chapter 4. Um, we, we ended last time, if you've got it there open with you, where we saw that Christ also suffered once for our sins, the just for the unjust. Hang on, begin again. Um, uh, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And in that verse, we have the core of the Gospel. Jesus died for us in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved. And as the, he, he was the only just and sinless person who has ever lived. He was the only one who could be an acceptable offering to God in place of us as we've heard in the, what Matt was talking to, uh, to us about with the children. We are the unjust, the sinful ones. He's the perfect one. But wonderfully, he didn't stay dead. He rose again to live forever, having conquered death for all who will believe on him for salvation. It's such a glorious core of the gospel there. But today, let's move on. We're going to see the rest of this paragraph, the rest of the chapter. <coughs> So just for completeness, I will include verse 18, because it leads into the rest of the passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth from of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Well, what is all that, all that about? Um, it's one of those passages of think, why do I preach through the Bible? And uh, 
might skip a few verses. <laughs> um, but uh, let's unpack it and see what it is. <clears throat> because Jesus died in his flesh for us, and the crucifixion accounts confirm that Jesus yielded up his spirit to God as he died, I think it is likely that Jesus then came alive in his spirit, that is his human spirit, and that's unrelated to his bodily resurrection that's more focused on the, on the body than the spirit. Jesus became alive again in his spirit in those three days when he was in the grave. There's no the before the word spirit in verse 18 in the Greek. So it, I think it refers to Jesus' own spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. I know we've got a capital S in the screen there because that's how the New King James uh, translators put it. But I think it's probably more Jesus' spirit that's being talked about there. Um, so that's in con- he, he died in, in, uh, in the flesh and he rose and he became alive again in his spirit. And because Jesus rose again he is entitled in God's eyes to live forever. It's a glorious message because his death was acceptable before God. And it seems that Jesus was made alive in his spirit uh, before he was raised in the body because while he was still physically dead, we then read in verse 19, that by whom, that's his human spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now that verse 19 has caused a lot of confusion over the centuries. It's been battled over by many commentators and scholars, so we need to treat it carefully. Uh, I'm going to put my two minutes here and uh, see where we go. Now, there are those who believe that this verse suggests that Jesus went to unsaved people who had died in order to preach the gospel to them, to give them a second chance to believe. That can't be so, for a number of reasons. First, we need to be aware that the word translated there as preached is not the word that is the word usually used for spreading the good news or evangelizing. Um, the, the typical word for preaching the gospel is the word from which we get the word evangelism in, in the Greek. And Paul used it, Peter uses that word four times in his letter. So we could have used that word if he meant to go and evangelize to these people. Um, were dead. The word that Peter does use means proclaim. And I think specifically here, Jesus was making an announcement, proclaiming his victory. He'd won. He died on the cross. He'd conquered death. He'd, he'd dealt with sin once and for all. So I think it was an announcement of victory because he had taken the sins of the world on the cross. It's possible that in speaking to these uh, spirits he's talking about could have been a message of judgment for them because Jesus has conquered death and he's entitled to be the judge. But secondly, we know from Hebrews 9.27 which says it's appointed for men to die once but after this the judgment. God graciously gives people second chances while they're alive on this earth. 
But once we die, there's no second chance. We are then judged according to how we've lived, and specifically, whether we have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation or not. So once we've died, our eternal destiny is fixed, either for or against God. So I don't think he's talking about giving a second chance to people. Third, we need to ask, well, who are these spirits in prison that we saw in that passage? But to whom Jesus made that proclamation. In the next verse, uh, I'll just go back so you can see it, in verse 20, Peter refers to people as souls, whereas generally the New Testament uses the word spirits to refer to angels or demons, not people. We could get an example of that uh, in Hebrews 1, 13 to 14, which says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? And so in verse 20, Peter gives us more help in identifying these spirits in prison. He says they formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, saved through water. And so as Peter links the events that he's talking about there, he links them to the events of the flood, perhaps we need to look at what Genesis says about that time, about the flood. So we get this in Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. And afterward, uh, sorry, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men and women, Sorry, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let's go back even further. At the time of Adam, when he committed that first sin, God, in his mercy, when he dealt with Adam and Eve, he promised a deliverer to come. There was that promise of someone who would, who would crush Satan. And we know that from the rest of the Bible, that person to come was Jesus Christ. And as the events of history have unfolded, uh, we've seen that Satan made numerous attempts to stop Jesus coming to the earth. And having failed in that later on, 
we see that uh, Satan tried to stop Jesus dying for the sins of mankind. And one of the more significant events uh, or attempts that, that Satan made to, uh, to stop Jesus coming was in the, the years leading up to the flood. Because Satan realised that if he could pollute the human race so that people were not purely human, then the coming deliverer, who we know was going to be a man and human, if he was polluted and not fully human, then he couldn't become the, the suitable sacrifice before God for mankind. And this is really what that Genesis passage is talking about and what Peter is talking about in his letter. So we read in Genesis 6 verse 2 that the sons of God, and that's a typical term in the Bible to refer to angels, they saw that human women were beautiful. So these angels came, took on human form, and took them as wives. Now we know that no godly angel would do that. It would only be fallen angels or demons who would do that. So they came, uh, married the beautiful young women, human women, and the children born to them were therefore half demonic, half human. And I think it's interesting that in mythology, the heroes of old were half God and half man. So although the mythology is just what it says, it's, they are myths, um, there is something in there that, that perhaps has got a smattering of truth uh, in that respect. And the natural outcome of this demonic infiltration into mankind will be a rise in wickedness as well as the pollution of the human race. And that's what we find happened in the days leading up to the flood. And because of this wickedness, because of that pollution of the human race, God had to judge the earth with a flood, which had to be worldwide. And he saved only Noah and his family. And Genesis uh, 6 verse 9 tells us that Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. It says Noah walked with God. So Noah was clearly a believer, but what the passage is saying is more than he was just a believer. He was perfect in his generations, which means he was not polluted with this demonic infiltration. He was a, a normal human being who could then go forward beyond the flood to populate the earth. And that meant that God could then legitimately start again with Noah, knowing that he was truly human, as well as a just man and a believer. And Noah was faithful in his witness in the days leading up to the flood, even though he wasn't very successful numerically, he only got his family on the ark with him. But isn't that a reminder to us that God looks for faithfulness as we serve him? The results are the fruit of his responsibility not ours. And the short letter of Jude also speaks about the same situation that Peter referred to and that Genesis has been talking to. In Jude, it's chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain 
but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These fallen angels left the place where they should be, and having taken on human form, they would have been deluged by the flood, and they are now chained and awaiting judgment when Jesus comes to judge all things. And then Peter, in his next letter, we're in 1 Peter tonight, but in today, this morning, probably. Um, but in 2 Peter, uh, Peter comments on this in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and de- delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but, did, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And in that passage, Peter's word for hell in the Greek is Tartarus. It's only used there in the Bible, and I think that it seems to be a separate compartment of the place of the dead that is reserved for these fallen angels. So it's no wonder then that Jesus, when he spent those three days in the grave, would actually go and proclaim his victory to these imprisoned spirits. They were the ones who were trying to pollute him coming. They were the ones who wanted to stop him saving the world. And Jesus therefore went, as Peter tells us, and proclaimed. He didn't preach, he proclaimed his victory to them. He proclaimed the fact he'd won. He'd paid the price for sin. He'd got to the cross which was God's intention all along. He broke the hold that sin has on mankind. And in fact, this identification of these imprisoned spirits was widely known in the the days of the Apostles. The people in in Peter's day would have known about this, so they would have reasonably understood what he was talking about. I've just had to spend the last... 10 minutes or so, unpacking it to explain it because we don't have that same understanding. And it's interesting that when the Jewish authorities made their formal rejection of Jesus in Matthew 12, it was on the basis that they thought he was demon-possessed. That was the very opposite of the reality. So it's no wonder, therefore, that Jesus went to these demonic spirits in prison to say, actually, no, Got it wrong. I've I've paid the price. I'm the real saviour. I've won. And I think this teaching from Peter about the events before the flood shows us it's crucial that Jesus wasn't in any way tainted by demonic infiltration, as was alleged uh, by the Pharisees. Anyway, I hope that's cleared up some of the mystery of that passage. So let's get back to. Peter in uh, chapter 3. And in verse 21, Peter draws a comparison of the flood with water baptism. Uh, Noah's message, uh, while he spent years building the ark, was that judgment was coming. And the only way for physical salvation then was to believe what Noah was saying and come into the ark. This is a landlocked country. And although only Noah and his family had the faith. The message was still there, being, being proclaimed and preached. Noah and his family were saved through water. And we as believers 
have water, have the water of baptism, related to our salvation. Because we know that outside of Christ, judgment is coming. Uh, just as it came in, in, in the flood, judgment comes on every human being who does not know Jesus Christ. So the need to respond to the gospel for each person is urgent. And we must be clear that we are not saved by being baptised, but actually baptism is an early step of obedience to God, following our decision uh, to be saved, following our coming to Christ for salvation. It's an act of obedience on the part of someone who has made a commitment, a conscious decision to be saved. It's not something that is done on behalf of someone who is not in a position to make that decision, such as an infant. Baptism, Paul says, is not about the removal of dirt on our body, or more like the dirt of the flesh life. But Peter says it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. And at salvation, our consciences are cleansed as we trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So baptism, according to Peter here, is the answer of that good conscience. And again, it must be a conscious decision, a response by the believer. No one can believe on your behalf to bring about your salvation. Each one of us must do it for ourselves. And Peter says that this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection showed the Father's approval of what had happened to Jesus, what Jesus did for us on the cross. His sacrifice was and is accepted by God so that we can know salvation and we can know a loving relationship with God. That's brilliant news, isn't it? The barrier between us and God has been removed by what Jesus did on the cross. So actually what matters now is, well, what do we think of Jesus? That's the issue now. If we reject him, then our sins are still, still with us. But the issue for us, what do you think of Jesus? If we will accept his sacrifices valid for us, then we're saved. If not, we reject it and we're not saved. And that decision affects your destiny for eternity. It affects each person for eternity. And once we die, as we've seen, there is no second chance. But in verse 22, we must go beyond the resurrection to the ascension. Jesus has gone into heaven uh, and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father. That's a place of authority. It's a, a place of power. And the Father would never have seated Jesus at his right hand if there was any problem or if there was any lack in what Jesus did for us for our salvation. Jesus accomplished all that the Father sent him to do, beautifully and perfectly. And the result is that angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him, as Peter says in verse 22. What does that mean? That means that all angelic beings, good and evil, are subject to him. And that assures us, without doubt, that the victory belongs to Jesus. Hallelujah. Because he is now in a position of a divine authority at the right hand of the Father. 
That's why the ascension is so important. But also, he's coming back, returning in victory to judge and to reign. And that reign will be glorious. As Christians, we might have troubles now, but we know that we are on the winning side forever, for eternity. So, let's move into chapter 4. We've spent a lot of time on about three or four verses. But chapter 4 naturally follows what we've just been talking about. It starts with the word therefore. You know that when you see the word therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. I think Peter knew something about Downing Street. (laughs) Drinking parties. And abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. In the knowledge of Christ's victory over the suffering that he faced while on earth, Peter tells his readers, and that includes us, to arm themselves with the same mind. Being armed has the concept of a soldier prepared for battle. And we know that as Christians, this is the situation that we are in. We are in a battle, whether we like it or not. And the word that Peter used for arm means to be armed for spiritual warfare. And that is what we're called to do. Sorry. Then being of the same mind points us to Jesus, who suffered in the flesh. Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him. And we should settle it in our minds that even if, even when, our discipleship in Christ means that we will suffer as well, we need to make our minds up now that we will still follow him, we'll stand firm. If we go into a darkened room, it's not long before our eyes become accustomed to the darkness. And we live in a darkened world, and Peter here calls us not to become accustomed to the darkness that's in the world, but we're to stand as lights in the darkness. The commitment that uh, that God calls us to have is nothing greater than the commandment Jesus had in enduring suffering for our salvation. And in these last days, we need to have a commitment to God that that, uh, will endure through the struggles that come our way. Peter isn't saying in the the second part of the verse that we become sinless because we suffer. But if we have Christ in our lives, we are less likely to sin. And in such times, we have to focus on Jesus, 
so that the temptation to sin will just diminish. If our eyes are on him, sin is remarkably unattractive. The tense in the Greek suggests a definite break from sin. And it's easier to slip into sin when our lives are at ease. But we're to be armed, ready for battle. And when we taste suffering, I think the ugliness of sin loses its appeal for us. We realise that we're standing for Christ. That's so much more important. Then in verse 2, Peter brings out the purpose of what he's just said. That the one suffering should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's what we're called to live for. And when a person suffers physical persecution for the sake of Jesus, it almost always profoundly changes their outlook regarding sin and the pursuit of, uh, and the, pursuit of the lusts of the flesh. They're so unimportant when we're standing for Christ, when we're facing opposition for Christ. And the person that's going through that sort of experience is more likely to live the rest of his time in the flesh of this life and not for the lusts of, the, of men, but for the will of God. One commentator says of this verse that it depicts the spiritual state of the victorious sufferer. It carries a note of triumph. He has effectively broken with a life dominated by sin. It's been terminated. So with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're not alone in this. We might face, face difficult times, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to equip us to face these things. But we still need to choose for him and not for the flesh. And the more we live in the light of eternity, knowing that Jesus could come for his church at any time, the more we will want to live for Christ each day that he, he gives us on this earth. God's will for us is not burdensome, but as we live by God's word and as we're filled by the Holy Spirit and our will becomes aligned to his will, then it's a delight. God's heart of love has given us everything we need to stand firm for him in the face of opposition. So let's use the days that God gives us for his glory to live for him. And then in verses 3 to 6, Peter draws out past, present and future responsibilities that he sets before his Jewish Christian readers and he sets them before us as well. The past aspect is in verse 3, that they've spent enough time in the past living like the Gentiles. And then he lists out the various sins that were common in Gentile life. They haven't gone away in our day either, have they? Now much of the sins referred to would have been part of the pagan culture uh, of the Roman world that Peter would have known and would have seen. The lewdness and the lusts would have included sexual sins often incorporated into the pagan worship of the day. But they would have also have included the, all kinds of evil appetites and excess that we should turn from. The drunkenness, the revelries, 
the drunken parties in Downing Street, and anywhere else for that matter, they all include an excess of alcohol and a lack of restraint that should not form part of a Christian's life. I think some Christians, particularly young Christians, they seem to think, well, if we do these things every now and then, it's not really too bad. You know, God will forgive us. And yes, graciously, he does forgive us. But, you know, we can do a bit of sinning as long as most of the time we behave ourselves. That's not what it's all about. To think like that is to mock the suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and so we could have a relationship with God. It also shows, if that we do that, that we are ignorant of the utter holiness and purity of, of God and what offends him. It's a profound and foolish waste of time for Christians to live like the world. And we must simply stop being double-minded and live for Jesus Christ as Bible-believing Christians. And Peter then ends his list with abominable idolatries. Um, and that includes all, all kinds of idolatrous acts. We may not these days have physical idols like the one they used to have in Roman, in Roman days, but frankly anything that comes before God in our lives is actually an idol for us and ought to go. Then in verse 4, Peter turns to the present aspect of responsibility. He tells his readers that the, the Gentiles think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And the Jewish believers had turned from the excesses and the lusts of the Gentiles. But they were now considered odd in the, eye, in the minds and eyes of those who did those things. And as our lives are cleaned up by God, then those who knew us before our conversion will probably think we're a bit odd. They might think we've lost our minds. Um, but actually, it's more a case of we've found our sanity in Christ. Our thinking has been turned the right way up, not the wrong way up. Our friends might start speaking evil of us. They might think we joined a cult, or that we're upside down. But as I say, we're the right way up because our thinking is transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God and by the Spirit. When we don't participate in the sin around us, when we convict those who still practice their sins, they don't like it, they might speak evil of us. But that should show us the importance of having a biblical outlook on life, not one that's worldly and sinful. The unsaved person may judge us, but one day our Saviour will judge them, and that should prompt us to pray for them, to share the good news. And then in verses 5 and 6, uh, we find the future aspect of Peter's message. There is a judgment coming, and those who reject Jesus will be called to account, whether alive at the time of Jesus' return or not. And I would say that most people in this world do not give adequate thought to what will happen to them after they die. But God shows no partiality. And if a person doesn't respond to repentance and faith to Jesus in this life, then God will respect that decision 
for eternity. It's important we don't take verse 6 out of context. It's not suggesting that people have a second chance of salvation uh, when, they, when they die. It says, for this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. I don't think it's talking about a second chance at all. The Bible, as, as we've seen, is quite clear that when we, we die once and then face God's judgment. But for the believer, our judgment has been taken by Jesus on the cross. So the only judgment that we face as Christians is for our works. And that governs our rewards beyond this life. What Peter is saying here instead is that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, but who were preached to while they were alive, and they've then made the decision one way or the other for Christ. And uh, actually, I think he's more likely talking about those who have been martyred for their faith. They were judged on earth by men living in the flesh, who decided to condemn and kill them. But God says that such people will live according to God in the spirit. In other words, they were saved spiritually. In these few verses we've looked at today, I think Peter has challenged us to living discipleship. We've seen the victory of Jesus over the enemy's attempts to stop God's plan coming to pass. And because of that victory, we can know the amazing new life that Jesus died to give us. It really is tremendously good news. Being born again to new life in Christ transforms us so that we are to live for God and not for ourselves. We are to be increasingly like God and not like the world. This way of living may not be popular in the world's eyes, but it'll be well worth it when we receive a welcome and a commendation from our Lord for being faithful. And his view of matters is far more important than the shallow and the transient opinions and, and popularity that might be found in the world. We're looking at what will last for eternity. Jesus, as we saw in that parable earlier, went to great lengths to give us salvation. But he's also, by the Holy Spirit, given us everything we need to live for God during our time on earth. And he calls us to do it daily. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for the victory that Jesus has won on the cross. He died once. That was all that was needed. He rose again to show his victory and is now at the right hand of the Father in power and authority and is coming again. Hallelujah. Lord, in the light of that, how can we live for the world? Help us to live for you. Help us to be available for you to use for your glory each day that we live. Help us not to waste the time we have, but to burn for Jesus and to share the good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.